1: Hello, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we're going to be answering a very pressing question in Christian conversation these days: Can a Baptist be a Christian nationalist? And the short answer is yes. But how we get there is a little bit more interesting. As we're going to take a look at the Baptist Confessions of Faith over the history of Baptist theology. So that's going to be how we get to the answer that we're going to get at. But first, I want to let you know, Evangelical Dark Web is a Christian news gathering and commentary ministry. You can support us over at evangelicaldarkweb.org join. That's our Patreon-like system. We don't use Patreon because they censor, so we built our own. Otherwise, we have a free newsletter that gives you more access to more content than we do on video or podcasts. But the least you can do to support this ministry and content is to like the video and also subscribe to the channel if you are new. So, this is the article that we're going to be using today. Can a Baptist be a Christian Nationalist? Same title as the video. And this was written by my brother and myself. We've kind of merged two independent uh, starting you know, projects into one uh, project, like two rivers flowing into one and that's what this article is and we've been working on this for weeks and this is the result uh and i'm just going to use this article for the entirety of the video one of the most common objections to christian nationalism from a from baptist is that there is an incongruency between baptist distinctives and christian nationalism this objection that Christian nationalism contradicts Baptist theology has been levied by John Piper of Desiring God in several establishment Southern Baptist. While there exists a bevy of resources and theological precedent allowing for Presbyterians to adopt this theology, there does not exist, to near the same extent, Baptist resources on a theology of Christian governance." Yet, rather than use the lack of precedent for grounds of dismissing Christian nationalism, Baptists must reconcile historic Baptist theology with a label that describes biblical governance of a nation. Historically speaking, the evidence shows that Baptist distinctives reconcile amicably with Christian nationalism. So, what is Christian nationalism? I think it's pretty important to define The issue, and this is the definition of Christian nationalism, according to my upcoming book, Winning Not Winsome, which will hopefully be out in the summer, early summer. What is Christian nationalism? Christian nationalism is the belief and practice of Christianizing a nation, either establishing or restoring a Christian heritage to a people through the spreading of the gospel, establishing of institutions, and aligning civil laws with the law of God. So that's the definition of Christian nationalism, according to Evangelical Dark Web. So, and that's the and it lines up with the other definitions that you'll see online. I think most of the other definitions are just different angles of the same picture. And I think this is the best uh, angle, or this is the most encompassing definition that cap- I think best captures uh, what everyone's talking about when they talk about Christian nationalism. Anabaptist roots long rejected. So this is a section that I wrote specifically to uh, point out that Baptists and Anabaptists are not the same in their views on church and state, church and world. Uh, the Baptist distinction, distinctives are commonly known as follows and are the result of the early Anabaptists, crudo-baptism, uh, congregationalism, separation of church and state. Now I I word it that way because when I was, you know, doing membership classes at an SBC church one time, these were taught as Baptist distinctives as it relates, you know, from the historic Anabaptist movement. On this third distinction, there needs to be much established clarity. The Anabaptist understanding of separation of church and state is vastly different than the views that Baptists would adopt shortly thereafter. Anabaptists believe in a radical two-kingdom approach in which they view the things of this world as sinful. The Anabaptists sought total separation from the world, which included a neglect of civil engagement and duties. During the height of the Ottoman Empire's extent into Europe, Anabaptists would refuse to take up arms to defend their country from Muslim invaders, which was a major contributing factor to their persecution. I think that people didn't like Anabaptists because they were bad citizens, not because they were dunkers. Like, that's... So, that's my view on the... uh, history of the Anabaptists. They were bad citizens, and that's why no one liked them. Uh, the Anabaptist view on church and state is vastly different than the view majority of Baptists hold today, and is certainly not evident in early Baptist faith confessions, such as the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, see below. Most Baptists today have a higher value of citizenship, unlike the Anabaptist of the Reformation. The reason for this disparity is not that Baptists have failed to adhere to their own theology. Rather, Baptist theology has long rejected the Anabaptist view of church and state. Indeed, the laying of hands would become a greater Baptist distinctive in the coming centuries than the separation of church and state as the Anabaptists understood it. So, that's just a plain reading of you know subsequent uh, faith statements. Uh, not necessarily the SBCs, but in any case, uh, religious liberty in Roger Williams, who's a key figure in Baptist history. Within Anglo-American history, the idea of religious liberty is rooted in the teachings of Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, who founded the colony for the purpose of ecumenical freedom. Williams was against the enforcement of the First Table of the Ten Commandments and vehemently opposed the linking of church and state, mainly through the Church of England, but also through Puritans who wanted, or who required church participation as a prerequisite for civic engagement. When they, the church, this is a quote from Roger Williams, when they, the church, have opened a gap In the hedge or wall of the separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world, God hath ever broke down the wall itself, removed the candlestick, etc., and made his garden a wilderness, as it is this day, and that therefore, if he will ever please to restore his garden and paradise again, it must of necessity be walled to peculiarly, Peculiarly unto himself from the world, and that be saved out of the world, all are to be transplanted out of the wilderness of the world. Or say that all that are to be saved out of the world are to be transplanted out of the wilderness of the world. So he's talking about separating from the world. This is an Anabaptist view that Roger Williams has. It's also a minority view at the time, which is which is what we're about to talk about here. This wall of separation became the inspiration for Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists, where the noted separation of church and state has gained misconstrued popularity. Roger Williams takes on the Anabaptist approach towards his employment of the garden imagery in reference to the church and governance. While Jefferson's context is, was more aligned with the notion of individual states possessing their own religious establishments, as was the circumstance at the time, Williams' belief extended beyond Christian denominations and Catholicism. Another quote from Roger Williams states this, There go many a ship to sea, with many a hundred souls in one ship. Whose weal and woe is common and true picture of the common of a commonwealth, or a human combination or society. It hath fallen out sometimes that papists, Protestants, Jews, and Turks, may be embarked in one ship. Upon which supposal, I infer, I affirm that all the liberty of conscience that ever I pleaded for turns upon these two hinges, that none of the papists, protestants, Jews, or Turks be forced to come to the ships prayers or worship, nor be compelled, restrained, from their own particular prayers of worship if they practice any. Roger Williams. That's a quote from Roger Williams. Williams would express that it is biblical that a society tolerate pagan idolatry, and his vi- version of religious liberty is more in line with modern understanding, It's extending it beyond Christianity to all religions, which would have made his beliefs extreme relative to his contemporaries. This is likely the Credo-Baptist tradition that Stephen Wolfe, the author of the, Christ- the Case for Christian Nationalism, alludes to being the, a theological roadblock to Christian nationalism and this tradition was prevalent given Williams given that Williams was granted a charter to establish a colony. Despite being a minority viewpoint in his day, Williams was significant in his influence with, American Baptist Churches USA, stemming from his church in Providence, Rhode Island. Nevertheless, whether Baptist doctrines have historically aligned with Williams' positions on on religious liberty is the determinative question. And now we're going to talk about the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Popular among Reformed Baptists like Joel Webin and Apologia, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith is a comprehensive doctrine which includes Christian theology pertaining to civic engagement. Its adoption by the Philadelphia Association of Baptist Churches in 1742 would reflect development for Baptist theology within American colonies going into the American Revolution. Chapter Twenty Four of the Civil Magistrate of the sixteen eighty nine London Baptist Faith Confession or Confession of Faith uh, states the following: God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under Him over the people for His own glory and the public good, and to this uh, to this end has armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for punishment and for the punishment of evildoers. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of, of magistrate when called thereunto, in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth, so for that end they may lawfully now, under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions." Civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath but for conscience' sake, and we ought to make supplications and prayers for kings and all that are in authority, that under them we may live quiet and peaceful, peaceable lot a quiet and peaceable, peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The 1689 based its doctrine from Romans 13, whereby God ordains government to punish evil and reward good. That all authority is subject to God is thematic in this confession's statement. There is nothing which strictly precludes the, prohibit, the prohibition of the first table issues uh, present especially if such was prohibited when a Christian is called into the office of magistrate. So basically what we're talking about here is that the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith gives free reign for Christians to enforce the first table of the law, loving God. The 1689 Confession is Sabbatarian. Theoretically, the 1689 might encourage the institution of Sabbath laws, or a return of blue laws when Christianizing a nation. Given the state of the American church, this might not be thrusted to the forefront, as doctrine of the Sabbath is a secondary issue. Thus, it might not be encouraged to pursue imposing a 1689 understanding of the Sabbath upon a nation where this doctrine is disputed for sake of maintaining justice and peace so that all might live a quiet And peaceable life This confession does not support the compulsion Of conscience As dictated in chapter 21 So basically What that last part is saying Is that uh, This The civil government can't make Someone a Christian So we understand as Baptists that the civil government Can't do that even when we have a Christian government in place We can't do that we understand that It's common sense Nonetheless, the 1689 confession would endorse Christian nationalism as is defined in common discourse, or at least the def- or at very least the minimum the definition that we provided here. In fact, this confession would encourage civic participation by Christians to be pr- or would encourage it uh, and consider it to be preferable to being ruled by non-believers. More importantly, the doctrinal basis of this confession does not conflict with Stephen Wolfe's version or vision of Christian nationalism. Now we're going to talk about the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith. John Newton Brown's New Hampshire Confession of Faith reflects post-revolutionary Baptist thought as American Baptists shifted their focus towards missions both domestic and global. When the triennial Convention attempted to take a stance on slavery. This Southern Baptists formed their own convention, making this theolog this confession the prevailing doctrine for the early SBC. By the way, this is a hot take, but the SBC was theologically in the right on this issue. So for anyone who wants to say that the SBC has a bad history, um, the SBC is still around today, whereas the other Baptists are not and are certainly mainlined. So, I think there's some providential vindication to the, Southern, the early Southern Baptists, who would take up the 1833, but that's a slight digression and hot take. When Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary opened, this confession served as their statement of faith, and many SBC churches maintain this confession to this day. Though it is still Calvinist, it is not as Calvinist as the 1689 Confession. And you'll notice this trend within Baptist confessions of faith, that they have varying degrees on where they stand on soteriology. Uh, this one's a little less Calvinist than the 1689. So on chapter uh, fifth, 16 of, of the civil government, the 1833 uh, New Hampshire Confession of, State, of Faith states, we believe that civil government is defined is of divine appointment for the interest and good order of human society, and that the magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored, and obeyed, except only in things that oppose to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, who is the only Lord of the conscience and Prince of the kings on of the earth. I would actually describe this as a truncated version of the 1689. This is a condensed version of that. Though not as extensive as 1689 and the or though not as extensive as the 1689, the 1833 New Hampshire Confession lays a basis for civil disobedience when government acts contrary to the Lord, meaning that proper governance would be in accordance to God's law. This certainly would support the enforcement ...of second table law issues on first table issues, confession is not as comprehensive, but it certainly cannot be employed to suggest that allowing Islamic mosques is for the interest and good order of human society. The broad notions of religious liberty from Roger Williams are absent in this confession, meaning that this doctrine would be in support of Christian nationalism if properly held much like the 1689 Confession. So now we're going to talk about this Baptist faith and message 1925, which is a trash, uh, which is trash. It belongs in the trash can. That and the BFM 1963, and I'll talk about that in a second. The BFM 1925 is a distinctly Arminian faith statement, which takes a step towards Roger Williams' view of, on the state. The st- and here's a quote from it. The state owes, the church, uh, owes to the church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Civil government being ordained by God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience ther- thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. The church should not resort to civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal and this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men, and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by civil the civil power. This document absolutely provides leeway for a classical liberal approach to Christianity in the public sphere. The Baptist faith in, uh, message 1925 was rather short-lived, a mere 38 years it bears little similarity to the BFM 1963, which also belongs in the trash by the way. As the BFM, 1963 is more accommodating is more accommodating to reform theology. Another note about the 1925 is that it's not the best English, like I think it's a dumbed down uh, confession of faith. And you know that writing was a lot more advanced back then than it is now, but that one felt a little dumbed down even still. And now we're going to talk. We're going to skip the uh, 1963 uh, to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is the most recent major Baptist confession of faith. Probably the most influential Baptist doctrine today, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 (BFM) um, is the most religiously broad of the major confessions within Baptist thought. Whereas the others are reformed doctrines of varying. De- degrees I actually would say that the Baptist faith and message has progressively uh, taken a more middle approach to the issue of soteriology. Uh, BFM 1925 is clearly Arminian. It gets a little bit more accommodating to Calvinist theology in 1963 and is pretty much the same on that particular issue, if not slightly more Calvinist in uh, 19 or in 2000. Uh, the basis of the BFM 2000 stems from the BFM 1963, which contains most of the same planks as the current edition as the original doctrine was designed to combat inerrancy. Not not the 1963, but the uh, 2000. In three iterations, the 1925, the 1963, and the 2000, the BFM language has been qualified throughout the years with added clarification in various articles as issues arose Within the denomination and surrounding culture. Whereas the, 19, the BFM 1963 is completely toothless. Like on any issue it's completely toothless. The BFM 2000 fills in much of the gaps. Taking very strong stances on hot button issues. This is the strength of the BFM 2000. It takes very strong stances on hot button issues uh, of today. And you can't say that about the 1689. Unfortunately. You know. Uh, This is from chapter 15, the Christian and Social Order of the BFM 2000. All Christians are under obligation to seek and make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the se- in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism in every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, in all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the the sick, we should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteous truth righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of good will in any cause, always being careful to act in the spiritual spirit of love without, without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. That's actually pretty base for you know the Baptists to have written. The Christian and social order was included in the original BFM, being amended to include condemnations of adultery, homosexuality, and pornography, as well as to articulate that Christians should be pro-life. Therefore, in order to be compliant with the BFM, combating the homosexual agenda and abortion are are requisite, and this should be expected if a Christian is called to be a magistrate or civil servant. Although it is not as precise in its application as the other confessions, the BFM does explicitly condemn the sins of modern America without ambiguity. It should be expected that to be compliant with the BFM, supporting enforcement of the second table commandments is necessary, meaning that what two people do in a be- in the bedroom is their business is not in accordance with the BFM. However, on the first on first table issues, the BFM 2000 is stronger in language than its predecessors, which undermines the which which undermine the practical applications for Article 15 on the social order. So this is what the current BFM states on religious liberty. Religious, uh, this is from Chapter 17. So two, chap- two chapters later, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and He has let it left it free from the doctrines of the and commandments of men, which are contrary to His Word, or not contained. In It contained in it, church and state should be separate. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than other civil government being ordained of God. It is the duty of the Christian of Christians to render loyal obedience thereunto in all things not contrary. ...to the revealed will of God. The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The, the state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. The free, A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal... And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. So this, you know, one could argue that little has changed since 1925. The BFM articulates a a separation of church and state under the premise of a more Christian society, yet it does not begin with Romans 13 with the Romans 13 assertion that the 1689 and 1833 do in regards to the civil magistrate. In fact, this, theolo- this theological notion is that the state is subservient to God is downplayed compared to its emphasis against sectarian favoritism or taxation. While it assumes a Christian society, uh, in in the Baptist faith, the message, message assumes or at least the 2000 version assumes a Christian society paganism would theoretically receive the same treatment from the government under the BFM or at a minimum it is far more ambiguous on the other hand the BFM 2000 moves the Southern Baptist in a, more in alignment to the 1689 London Baptist Faith Confession as it as its positions on hot button issues paired with its underlying premise of a Christian society and a government that is tasked with allowing the church to operate freely provides more of a basis for Christian nationalism under an ecumenical vision. Historically, the Southern Southern Baptists have not lived up to the stances held in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the BFM 2000. Uh, Contradiction within the BFM arose when liberals argued uh, it is resorting to civil power to carry out the carry on the work of the church for the state to restrict abortion, homosexuality, or even pornography. SBC leaders like Richard Land wrote that separation of church and state means that, among other things, that the church should not use the coercive powers of the state to penalize consensual infractions it considers immoral. In reference to Uganda's criminalization of homosexuality in 2014, Land, and countless others are entirely incorrect in suggesting that the criminalization of homosexuality is not within the realm of the civil magistrate. Additionally, Brent Leatherwood, the current head of the ERLC, used the Southern Baptist Convention to fight anti-abortion legislation in Louisiana, actively opposing aligning civil law with the law of God. The separation of church and state that the BFM imposes provides coverage for those who would muddle the distinction between spheres of the of church and state rather than provide precise definitions of their roles. Overall, the the religious neutrality expressed in Article 17 of the BFM is ubiquitous among Baptist leadership today, and this would reflect criticism that Presbyterians like Stephen Wolfe have against Baptist tradition, acting contrary to the Christianization of a nation. And now we're going to talk about the problems with modern Baptist thought, and then we're going to talk about the solutions and be done. Modern Baptist thought, whereas both the 1689 and 1833 confessions emphasize government's role in promoting the social good, which would be based on Christian law, the Baptist faith and message emphasis on separation has led to ambiguity and antinomianism with its practical with its application for the christians and social order the, theo, the the theological absence pertaining to the civil magistrate is an overt deficiency in the bfm theoretically southern Baptists should support christian nationalism but the doctrines have negatively taken on more in But the doctrines have negatively taken on more influence from Roger Williams than prior confessions. Liberal Baptists stemming from the original triennial convention have reduced Baptist distinctives down to four freedoms. Bible, soul, church, and religious. Without deliberating the biblical merits of these four freedoms, or lack thereof, the tangible outcomes of these freedoms are pietism and antinomianism. This might be in part due to the rise of various theological camps within Baptist thought. For instance, the early American Baptists were largely Calvinist and reformed, as is a reflection in the confe- in their confessions with a minority of general Baptist sects with a minority of general Baptist sects. Arminian Arminianism and dispensationalism arise within American, American theology primarily in the 1800s, where they gained much traction. This would be under the influence of the Second Great Awakening and its prominent leaders like Charles Finney. The rise of Methodism in the United States, dispensationalism and pietism from Europe, the unbiblical emphasis on temperance, and a shift away from Calvinism all all seeped into Baptist thought. Naturally, new apostate sects and cults emerged in the 1800s that still exist today, most notably the Mormons and Millerite sects. Over time, Baptist thought became disconnected from its early American roots, forming denominations like Independent or Fundamental Baptist, Free Will Baptist, National Baptist, Black Baptist Conventions, and a variety of other theological factions. By the time... The conservative resurgence occurred, Calvinism was the minority in the SBC, though their influence gained with the young, restless, and reformed surgency in the la- in recent decades. To their credit, Arminians like Adrian Rogers and Paige Patterson led the conservative resurgence. Many, congregation, or many congregants within Southern Baptist churches and those within non-denominational Credo-Baptist churches stem from mainline denominations, which devolved into apostasy like the United Methodist Church. This is more evident in states where theological traditions strayed away from its foundation, like Methodism in Maryland. Many have embedded the religious liberty notions of Roger Williams to where it is extreme or abnormal to suggest otherwise. The dogma of separation of church and state has become self-conscious, doctrine, and associated with national belief in identity, despite historic evidence of religious liber- of religious favoritism within America. In other words, many in the pews and pulpits have adopted tenets of classical liberalism pertaining to c- civic order and the magistrate. Final section: Baptist solution. So we've just articulated the problem. Let's articulate the solution. American Baptists are rather broad in their spectrum of belief. Yet the civic religion of America, which subconsciously influences one's theology, must be refuted like the proposition nation that America is a founded uh, that America is an idea or, an I, or the ideas of separation of church and state as it is currently perceived. Even democracy is viewed as sacred or ideal, despite Scripture not advocating such practice. Increasingly, many are disaffected by how America has devolved, rendering their understanding of America easier to uh, to comport with historic Christian understanding of the nation. Antinomian ideas as classical liberalism, religious pluralism, or moral neutrality must be discarded entirely in favor of a return to the understandings of governance found within his, the historic confessions of faith, whether it be the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith or the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Neither of these two confessions advocate a state-instituted church, which would avoid the slanderous accusations of papist integralism. Technically, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 16. 16- uh 46 does not condone state operated churches either thus remaining in just remaining in the constraints of the historic confessions should engender the best out, remaining in the constraints of the historic confessions should engender the best outcomes for both church and state these confessions whether they be the Westminster Sex 1689 or the 1833, each provides similarly adequate guidelines for Christian political theory. Christian nationalism is about creating a social fabric rooted in God's word. In order to combat the globalist decline of America, there must be a restored national interest, yet the same cultural decay is driven by the globalist interest. America requires its own reformation, just as the church did during Luther's day. The solution to developing a proper Christian political theology should not be novel, but a continuation of the foundations laid by our spiritual forefathers. In other words, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And that is how we will reform a proper theology of Christianity in the public sphere, in the civil magistrate, in the nation? So that's that's the answer to the question. A little bit long, but you got the short answer and the long answer. And I hope this video was helpful. Let me know what you think about what I think in the comment section below. Have a blessed day and we will catch you on the next one.